Is this a podcast? We watch too many. talking about ashley lead us in oh brother um <laughs> we uh, watched the asphalt jungle 1950 directed by john houston angelica houston's dad is it yeah it's a whole nepotism family so his grandfather was an actor john houston is a director angelica houston wow. and then he has an, another son let's say the running time was an hour and 52 minutes based on a novel i feel like all these noir movies are based on novels so i guess that'll be a running theme for these next few ones they gotta get the reference somewhere right yeah they gotta get the story somewhere but he has a screenwriting credit john houston yeah yeah so i think he adapted pretty faithfully and used some of the some of the dialogue straight from the book and it's mgm yes mgm and starring sterling hayden as character dicks Hanley and Lewis Calhern is Mr. Emmerich and Jean Hagen as Doll. No last name. That's all she is. That's to all us. she gets. <laughs> and Marilyn Monroe is and have or does have an appearance, but she's not top build. And she was basically unknown in 1950. I read that she auditioned maybe specifically for mr mayor but yeah so he was taken or smitten by her seductive audition and she so he requested that she be in asphalt jungle so i heard something else that that john houston wanted someone else and she was uh she wanted lola albright who is not available um, so he had Monroe come in for a screen test and she read, she re- rehearsed for it and she read for it in front of him in his office. And he was like, nah, this isn't right. Oh. Please leave. She gets up and walks out of the room and he's like, wait, hold on. Oh my God. And he's later like, oh, only a lady like Monroe could make an entrance while leaving a room. Oh my God. <laughs> so dad ass got her the role. <laughs> yeah. But then you see her and you're like, where's the ass? Where's the ass? She does look so young, too. She looks so young. And they even say, like, you're young enough to be Emmerich's granddaughter. And he watches her sleep. Oh, he's so creepy. He watches. Oh, right. Because he that's our introduction to her, Mm -hmm. which is it's obvious that she wasn't a big star because they're introducing to her. She's just kind of sleeping on a couch. And then she's like, ooh. Yeah. Wakes up like a little cat. I know. Like, (laughs) it makes her look even more like a little girl. And he's even more creepy for just watching. He's not looking at her with affection in his eye. He's looking at her with, like, almost menacing. Like, greed. Like, self-hatred. He pays for it. Like, he owns her or something. So did we do a synopsis? I don't like, know if we did. So Doc is getting out of jail. He got out of jail, and this, he's a super smart mastermind who German. organizes, yeah, expat who organizes big, I guess, jewelry heists. But he, he gets all the insider information, and then he gets his team. And so he needs a box man, 
a driver and a hooligan. Mm -hmm. So it's a pretty small team. And then they need a financial backer and a fence. So they assemble their team from a cast of characters that we know from the exposition. And then they get their financer, who's Emmerich, the lawyer, who then wants to go on and be the fence because we find out he's drowning in debt. And he wants to take all the money and leave them with nothing mm-hmm. and basically say, oh, I'll wait to to verify the gems and the gold and sell them and then I'll give you your cut. But he's planning on skipping town. Right. He has a mistress and a wife he doesn't like much. I hate that guy. Yeah, he's Emmerich is terrible. so annoying. His and I just like really want to punch him the whole movie. He it's almost like, kind of looks like a Hitchcock, though. He does. And he's very <laughs> jowly. Yes. Yeah. So they go on with a heist. Everything pos- everything goes wrong. There's a very famous 11-minute scene where they do the whole detail of the heist process. And I think the codes also had a problem with this because it was like, too detailed. We're showing crime. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> everything goes wrong. One gets a slug in the belly. Um, I thought it was his leg, but he keeps saying, my stomach, my stomach. Yeah, at one point he says... I got shot in the thigh and it's moving up. So I think Ooh. maybe the bullet was moving into his stomach. That's it was I gnarly. Kind of I gasped so many times gathered. in this movie. Um, <laughs> Dix was an interesting character. He held them all together, basically. I kind of felt like if I was doing a heist, I want him to have my back. Yeah. He so did, I guess, show his skill of, you know, working on the street and doing different crimes because he seemed to be like. And he was ready to kill Emmerich, the lawyer. The, the lawyer, when he gets caught and shit goes down, there's just so much to talk about. Um, <laughs> so the heist happens, like you said, everything that can go wrong goes wrong. And um, they manage to get the gems and the money out of the bank, despite alarms going off. And, oh, around the whole block. Yeah, the whole block. And the cops are coming. And their soft brick wall, though, gets them out. You know? <laughs> And so then they start to disperse and each kind of go um, in their own ways in order to hopefully be, you know, not be culpable. So then we see Emmerich really scheming. And With he's, his PI. He's yeah. also kind of swarmy. Like, of course, a swarmy guy hires an even swarmier guy. And right. kind of hate him, too. You don't trust him at all. I think he, I thought at one point he was going to. Yes, I thought he was going to. Turn on all yeah. of them. Because you give him just enough information, I mm-hmm. thought he was going to somehow scheme to get it. Yeah. But so he wants to split it 50-50 with Emmerich. And then he was going to get him the money to front, the to finance the caper. Which basically he just um, sort of hired or convinced Kobe to front the money yeah. as like a gesture of, goodwill to mr emmerich so yeah. i don't really even know why the pi did got any credit do anything yeah <laughs> yeah uh, yeah but you could tell that emmerich was kind of an ineffectual guy because hmm. he couldn't decide and he was sort of like oh collect on my debts and then he's like oh no i need the money now what should i do and the guy's like what's your deal right and then he kind of needed people to tell him what to do at every part and even when he's playing cards with his wife, she's like, you're not very good at this. It's true. <laughs> I was sort of like, this guy sucks at everything How he did he get here where he, you know, where he is or today? The beginning, it does kind of start from the police standpoint because of the lineup. 
But then uh, the police commissioner is also like, there's been this many stick-ups, this many crimes, like all in a week period. And then the lieutenant's like, yeah, and I know it's probably one guy who's behind all of them. Mm. And so that's kind of Dix's introduction a little bit. So I was bit. wondering, yeah, if Dix's character, um, he he seems like a smooth talker and like, you know, down on his luck. But I wouldn't picture him to be such a mastermind to be able to do all those different crimes. Like, I didn't pin him as being the ringleader of the crime. Well, Dix is, isn't really. Right. But you think we're introduced to Dix like he could be the ringleader? Like, yeah, are they like setting he's a him hoodlum, up? Like, he's a hoodlum and he has you know, right. gambling right. debts and he's, you know, kind of a right. he loves street crime. bet on horses. Right. I mean, that's kind of how he is. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Low level crime. Right. And just kind of a run of the mill hooligan. Yeah. Yeah. The, the premise of the movie is kind of like a, a bank heist or just a heist in general that they refer to as caper. caper. Yeah. Uh, first heist movie. Is it the first heist movie? Yeah. And so, so many are going to come after this. Oh, Even man. the killing that we're going to watch next are going to take after. Wow. This. For us, we think that heist movies have always been around because they are a very popular genre of movies or a certain crime of movies. Yeah, it's so funny because I watched the Maltese Falcon before watching this, and it's like it almost feels tired because we've seen so many incarnations of this detective and this woman who might be playing him and this fast talking. Like all of these are tropes at this point, but that right. was a movie that set them up. Yeah. And so it's kind of the same thing to go back and watch this, a heist movie, and you're like, okay, I know how a heist movie works, but this is the first one where it's like, let's gather the crew. Oh, yeah. Here's the soft spot. I love how they're like, it's a soft spot in the brick tunnel. And then it almost is a literal <laughs> soft is. spot. <laughs> I know. It's like, that looked really easy. They just chisel away at the bricks and one brick just crumbles yeah. apart. It's like, wow. He's been looking into the engineering of this space. So it's a heist movie, but it was almost a heist movie without any of the fun from a heist movie yes. because all of the characters are sympathetic. I would put like each character's backstory and then I put a sad face next to it because they're all so sad. And you really want them to succeed because right. of their personal bills and commitments that they have to. So you almost can't enjoy the actual heist because you're like, he has a sick kid at home. He really needs this money. Yes. This driver loves cats. <laughs> like his cat is losing a few pounds so he can give money to someone else. <laughs> and then it's like Dix needs to buy his family farm. Like they all have such high stakes. They and I feel have, like yeah. all of them are kind of nostalgic for a better time, it seemed like. Mm -hmm. Like, their best days are behind them, it seemed like, for so many of these characters. Yeah, they all had a different level of desperation. I thought that was, like, kind of a yes. running, like, all the male desperation. And it kind of is a telling of the times, though, right? It's after World War II. It's still not too far after a Great Depression. And so these guys maybe still are down on their luck from all of those right. instances. Um, and it could be a book from, like, the 30s, you know, or a story, a carryover. Yeah, I was kind of, kind of wondering what time frame it was set in i know it, you know it was released in 1950 but is it you know the 40s because they really I mean, do seem to all be desperate and like down i mean it's just the city but as eddie muller tells us is all these film noirs were meant to be contemporary like they okay. they weren't supposed to be a period piece they were meant to be this is of the times okay gotcha and yeah thinking of the film noir was pretty cool i guess to see that it was named by french yeah, so a French critic yeah. named it film noir, and it's kind of interesting after you kind of see in this movement especially 
that it starts to influence other parts of the world. And yeah. I guess Rafifi or Rafifi is a heist movie that's supposed to be like the best heist oh. movie ever made. And it's directly from this. Okay. I mean, it is a French movie, but it's from an expat director. Okay. But then we get neo-noir and even like some internationally made neo-noir is influencing America. City on Fire is a Chinese neo-noir that influenced Reservoir Dogs wow. and Quentin Tarantino. So it's sort of like, it kind of starts this ricochet yeah. across the world, which is kind of cool. And so many other countries have their own iterations. Yeah, but you always think of film noir as being like American 50s. And it's just right. so funny that it was named by a French critic at that time, but it wasn't really adopted by America until like the early 70s or the 70s or something like oh, that. Oh, I see. And so it's like we always just think that, oh, this is the genre that they intended, you know, like it was purposeful on the studio's part. Like, we're going to make this genre of films. Right. But no, it was happy accident, really. And I guess Billy Wilder, a big um, noir director, was like, I never meant to make a noir film. I just wanted to make films that I wanted to watch, hmm. which is kind of interesting. So I guess other directors are kind of influencing yeah. each other. And it was kind of a critique of the time after World War II and looking into psyches and kind of hmm. understanding how we could destroy the planet and each other so well. Like, what is man right. kind of made about? And then I guess reacting to the moral codes, they want to tell these dark stories but you kind of have to tell them in a certain way. Mm. Mm -hmm. And so, and, and making a commentary about the time, right. like a critique as well, a contemporary critique. In a way that was allowed. In a way that was allowed, right. Code. And almost like playing with the code. So I guess mm. the codes had a lot of problems with the script, but I think uh, Houston got away with a lot of them. Huh, problems with the script. It seems so PG today. But it's, but so... <laughs> Emmerich kills himself, right? So that's a right. big spoiler. Em Emmerich is the bad guy, and he's about to get caught. The police are at his door. His his mistress, who was his alibi, has recanted. Mm -hmm. He's a defense attorney, a criminal defense attorney, so he kind of knows the score. So I think it's very – so he writes out a suicide note to his wife, forgive me. We don't even see the gun, but we hear the gun blast. And so he is evading justice by right. killing himself. So the that's quote. a big, like, no-no in the codes. Easy like he, way he out. got away with it in a way. Right, right. And so originally, so in this one, he rips up the suicide note, which I think is interesting. But originally, he finishes the suicide huh. note. I thought it was more fitting that he did not finish it because you could tell he he couldn't even get behind those words. He couldn't even believe what he was writing you know, he w didn't seem to treat his actual wife that well. Yeah, he didn't really care she, about her. Right. He was going to leave her and run away. With, exactly. And leave her with all these debts. Yeah. And she was sick, too. Yeah. She was sick in bed the whole movie. So you could really tell it was like, uh, this letter's not even worth writing. No one's going to, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. Oh, so it was a lie even to him. Yeah. I feel like he couldn't even believe his words. So he's like, why am I even writing this? Wow. Me, you know. It's like he's already killing himself and he can't even get behind a suicide note. Yeah, because, like it's lie. because the words he was saying right. were so empty, basically. But beautiful penmanship. Beautiful. Man, that was wild. I was <laughs> yeah. like, look how he uses that quill. Right? <laughs> it's not a quill, you guys. And then you think he was going to write, I love you? What do you think he was going to continue? Is that an I? Oh, that's an I and he couldn't even say it, I Ashley. I think, good. yeah. That's a good note. And so I was like, that's when he was like, I don't love her, so I'm not going to write this down. Yeah. Yeah, so the, the shadows and the, you know, the black and white really add drama 
to even the smallest shot. Yeah, I thought, so another thing that makes this movie, like, not fun to watch, besides the sympathetic characters, Mm. is the, like, very gritty, almost claustrophobic sets. Like, Mm. you're always inside. They're very sparse. They look like they're impoverished almost wherever they go. Yes, they go to Emmerich's house, who's, like, a big-time fancy lawyer who's drowning in debt but has a nice place. Right. But the gaming hall cubbies gaming hall the boarding houses the apartments that they go into they're all a lot of them are really tight and they look like they're just bricks and very simple run down dingy right it's kind of like when humphrey bogart and the maltese falcon is like oh you know what do you think pays for this dump (laughs) (laughs) of course he has to be like oh my simple apartment (laughs) but it does i mean the desperation is echoed in all of the sets and there really isn't any humor or any light. It doesn't let up at all. Yeah. There's not any comic relief um, unless you laugh at some of the like small little instances <laughs> that happen. He can't even dispose of a body. Like so Emmerich's disposing of his P.I. And I'm like, oh, this is the first hard day's labor he's ever had in his life. Yeah, <laughs> that was a body awkward, off a bridge. Awkward shot. And he can't even like clean the bot. Like he doesn't even like... Um, dispose of all the papers in the pocket yes so it links back to him I even wrote, more I wrote, like the first thing you do is check the pockets when you're disposing <laughs> yeah. of a body that died in your own house <laughs> like come on Everett. <laughs> yes crime tip number one <laughs> but i do like the scene where the everything's going down so they bring the jewels to emmerich's house the pi's there so there are they already don't trust emmerich Mm because doc the mastermind kind of has an idea right sort of like i don't trust this guy because of what his hooker told him and he confides that in dix because dix is like the tough guy the strong arm and so i think it's kind of a cool because doc doc trusted dicks from the beginning he kind of was like i like this guy so he has a good feeling about him which turns out to be good Mm -hmm. so he confides to dicks like hey i don't really trust this guy so like let's make sure we get our money and dicks is like all right dude i hear you we'll make sure we get our money he's like we will collect so then the pi is sort of like oh i don't think this is gonna work out and then you the camera kind of surprises you by turning turning to the pi guy and he has a gun out and so dicks is like okay i guess he's got us fucking shoots him dead a, a hole in his pump yeah and how like well, i didn't even catch like where the gun came from from right. dick he's a quick he's draw. a sharp shooter but then so emmerich's like oh just kill me too and dix is like all right dude yeah and he then was ready. the one who's like stops him but you could like that guy is tough as nails That's like true. he will kill someone without even thinking he about is it. hardened so the lesson i learned from this movie is that real men sew up sew up their own bullet wounds that's probably the only sewing they know it's true <laughs> that's their reference <laughs> if as long as they can thread the needle just sew up your own stitches you're he good. doesn't do a very good job though he had Actually. a very he had a very like wild west feel yeah demeanor yeah. yeah he doesn't talk very much he doesn't smile mm-hmm. he has a woman doll who's just totally infatuated no, with him poor doll i kind of felt like her at some you know she's like so desperate no See, and he's so desperate he does not you're right it's that desperation yeah. thing he does not care at all and she will do anything for him yeah i couldn't tell if he was oblivious to the fact that she was in love with him or he just didn't want to see it because he knew it was bad for her or you know he couldn't deal with it like I, there was a little 
I think he couldn't open himself up to even see it, but she is just all over him, kind of. She will, if he says do something, she'll be there. But then she asks him for a kiss, and he obliges, and then she turns away very upset. And I was sort of like, what was wrong with that kiss, doll? So many kisses in this were awkward. <laughs> but uh, I, I also felt like she stood up to him only in the end in order for, you know, for his benefit. So she was, like, so passive and, like, would do anything he would say until it was, like, no, you're going to kill yourself driving away. I'm going with you. But so then he realizes, like, all right, like, you're willing to do this. Like, he he can't stop her. I think so. I think he kind of accepts there that, all right, she does love me despite all of my faults that I have shown her. Maybe he just needs a driver because he's bleeding out. No, he was ready to drive there straight to Kentucky. It's true. Give money to whoever <laughs> to buy he's that He's going to go farm. back to his old family farm and show up bleeding yeah. from a 12-hour drive and say, here is some cash. Exactly. And he didn't even want a stone, but here's some cash. I'm buying my farm. In what world does that ever They're like, work? okay, sir. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he finally made it here. Like he, so I don't know if he's just delusional at this point. He's lost a lot of blood. He's reliving their heyday of the farm. And he thought the black colt when he was younger was going to like make them a ton of money and ended up breaking its leg and having to be put down. And so he's like kind of delusionally in that time period i think in his mind which is the last time he was at the farm right had to sell it after that and their life changed drastically so it's and they lost their corn crop and their dad died yeah on the same year but so they do make it though to kentucky the farm and he gets out of the car and he runs to the field and all the horses come and check on him and I thought it was because the horses remember him from when he was a boy, and I cried at the end because the horses. And it's like he gets his dream, but then he dies immediately. Well, it's almost too full circle. Like, he couldn't let go until he got there, and he that was his life right. goal was to get that farm back, and he had to at least end up there. So it's like grasping that, oh, that you know, unattainable goal that he's been living with. They do mention he's only like 36 years old. And I was thinking he's got plenty of time to figure that out. <laughs> yeah, but it was like he he couldn't quite get it together because any money he had, he'd bet on horses. Even mm. when he had five grand, he'd still bet it all on a horse because he felt like he knew horses and it was a sure thing. So right. he, he was always kind of chasing it. Right. And he was getting in his own way because he even said me and my brother swore we'd buy the farm back. But he's not really working with them. He's yeah. just trying to do it himself. That's true. So and he was definitely kind of like a... He's not very successful at it. Yeah. He was kind of a broken character. Right. His facial expressions were pretty on point. He Six. showed a lot of emotion through his... Through his not dialogue. Like, yeah. he didn't talk much. I was impressed. But he did strike me as a very capable young man. Because, yeah, when he's describing the story of his dream and then going into his real Mm -hmm. life story he goes from like really excited euphoric to like angry and mad and then to like desperation and and despair and then like he goes that full circle like in a matter of a minute he's a skilled actor i think the interesting part is that the criminals do have such compelling backstories like Mm -hmm. even doc i want him because this is kind of what he knows this is the only work that he knows yes he's gone to jail for it and he's kind of accepted that and even when it's the end for him, he's pretty calm. 
Yeah. Oh, definitely. I thought that was fascinating. He just accepted it. And he's like asking if you can smoke a cigar and, you know, just like asking questions. Yeah. I mean, I guess because he wanted his few pleasures. Yeah. But he wasn't bitter that his own love of young women is what brought him down. Right. But it's a really cool shot when they go from him watching the girl to then the window. Yeah. The shot and the reflection of the policeman. I was like, whoa, that was cool. I liked that shot. So I did want to talk about Houston's directorial style. So you can mm. definitely see it in the Maltese Falcon. So he was, first he was a screenwriter. He had a contract to do um, dialogue. Oh. And. And not direct at all. Uh, yes, not direct at all. And then he, he wrote some. And so he wanted to direct. And so he made a deal with Warner Brothers that if his, um, if he had like a hit movie that he wrote, if they let him direct. And so he did High Sierra, 1941. And so that made Bogart a star. And so Warner Brothers decided to make good on their promise and gave him a shot at directing, which was the Maltese Falcon. Okay, I was going to say, same year. It was very little budget. Yes, same year. Eight weeks to shoot, like $300,000. Wow. So very low budget, very quickly. And he was a painter. He studied in Paris. And so he would sketch out each shot before filming oh my it gosh, the so it took a long time but you can really see the depth to his shots definitely in Maltese Falcon and also in this one like there's a a foreground a midground and a background mm-hmm. in so many of the shots and I feel like even if it's just a throwaway shot there's like a depth to it it's true and so I guess he would do very little editing he didn't even know the editor of his movie's names Whoa. because he would just get the perfect shot that he wanted and That's it would amazing. take some time to set it up even like, yeah, in the Maltese Falcon, there's almost like four spaces sometimes. So it just goes on and on and on. So it makes for a rich viewing, but in the sets and everything here, it's almost like a harshness. Hmm. But there's so many times where it's like three and shadowy backgrounds. Yeah, I love the scene with um, Dietrich and the commissioner at the beginning where he's showing his hands on the hat in the foreground oh, and the commissioner's wow. on the desk in the background. So it like really shows him like fiddling with the hat like he's uncomfortable but it you know it's just that whole setting up the scene of he's going into basically like the principal's office right and he's addressing down yeah it comes to him hat in hand yeah basically. and you exactly. can kind of see that expression right yeah and so the commissioner's not even looking at him basically but dressing him down right so you can see his hands fiddling with his hat and then you see the police commissioner at his desk and then you see the cityscape behind them right so i guess um, a quote from his assistant director, I think, for a lot of these movies is that other directors will just shoot a bunch of different scenes in a bunch mm. of different ways to kind of try and get what they want. They're like, I know that we'll get it at one right. take. And Houston would just get it in the first take because he was so meticulous. And so he was like, other directors use the camera like a machine gun, hmm. but Houston uses it like a sniper. Well, and also more like still photography, too. You do all that work in the front end so that you don't have to do all the work in the back end. And it can be more efficient, but also you have to have a clear-cut view of what you want it to be in order to get there. So that is, yeah, that's not easy to do. And it's just very artistic background, I would say, in order to have those compositions. Yes, I think he had a great eye. Mm Mm-hmm. So 1932, he was writing dialogue for movies, and his dad was an actor. So he said he kind of got his direction 
like how to be a director from watching his dad audition mm. and like becoming the character and working through the character. So he's a very character-driven director. Wow, cool. And then with his painter's eye. So yeah. it, it kind of works. It definitely I feel like his does. his whole background, like as a writer, he was a professional boxer. Like he was a really good boxer at one point. Wow, so And then dynamic. being a painter. Yeah, and then having a drinking problem. He had two drunk driving accidents. Two. The first one, he had his girlfriend in the car at the time. He was driving drunk. John Houston was driving drunk, hit a parked car, and she went through the windshield. Oh, my God. She survived, but she had head trauma, and Houston was charged for driving while intoxicated. And then, again, he killed an actress, Tosca Rulian. I'm not very good at noises. Noises? <laughs> Pronunciation. <laughs> so there was a rumor that Clark Gable was responsible but that the MGM general manager paid Houston to take the blame. It's probably just a rumor because Clark Gable was on location filming a movie at the time, okay. so we're not really sure. But the coroner like absolved Houston of the blame, which is kind of weird. It's like you you killed someone. It really affected him. Those so, accidents and those deaths, I would imagine it would. So for this movie, for The Asphalt Jungle, he was nominated for Best Screenplay for an Oscar and Best Director. But All About Eve came out that year, year too and was super stacked and won a bunch of yeah. different movies. And so because Marilyn Monroe got her breakout role in this movie, she was cast in All About Eve. Yeah, Marilyn Monroe. Yeah, and they changed the poster later after she became famous. They put Marilyn Monroe on the front cover of the movie to try, try to draw in viewers. The movie only made like $40,000. I saw that too. It just barely yeah. broke even. Any money. Yeah. So Houston first met Sterling in D.C. during a protest for against the House Un-American Activities Committee investigation right. to subversives. Right. So this happens right after this movie's film too. Then the Red Scare happens and McCarthyism happens. Oh, wow. Um, so that's cool. So yeah, he met him at the protest and he was basically like you have to play dick dicks handley he's like yeah he's i also read that these were all new york actors that all knew each other so everyone was trying to like almost outdo the other like everyone was trying to do their best for the others so it was like Uh, you get the best of the best and they're all trying to work as hard as they can and marilyn monroe said like she felt like she was the most important character while she was on set on set doing her line she's like i didn't have very many lines but the director made me feel like I was the most important person. The beginning when Doc sees the lieutenant, you know, that's when you find out lieutenant's on the take. He's already um, betraying his job, right? So it's only a matter of time. And I also like how the police commissioner is like, well, they clean up dirt all day. No wonder the dirt's going to rub off on them. I love that last speech monologue. Yeah, with with the radio cutting on and yeah, then off. Like, well, it was almost like a let's not defund the police kind of argument. Exactly. It felt really, it felt really modern because it was right. like you know, look at all these crimes that happen every hour of the day. These are going off. It never takes a break every day of the year. And there's police officers who are going out for every one of them. What would happen if they weren't there? Then the predators would win it was like yeah he says suppose we had and then flicks off the radio just silence nobody to listen nobody to answer and he's like the battle's finished the jungle won the predatory beasts take over yeah the predatory beasts think about it (laughs) but ends the speech think about it but then the whole 
movie is about how these are not predatory beasts, how these are people who are trying to feed their families and, you know, follow their dreams. At one point he does say that, or I think it's Emmerich who says, you know, after all, crime is the left-handed part of humanity. And so I think Doc says that too. I think they both say it's just the left-handed side of humanity. And I think that's what Houston was trying to portray with this movie, like, you're just doing another job. It's just on the left-hand side. And then did you think, like, when Doc gets in the cab with, like, the German cabbie, like, he's, I thought like, he was home get free? Sure. No, I, th- I was like, I knew. I, it was like there was a hammer about to fall, and I was like, when is it going to fall, and how is it going to fall? But it's like a, he starts talking to him, and I was yeah. like, oh, no, it's a policeman. He's going to recognize you. But then they have this bond, and the guy's right. going to drive him all the way to Cincinnati. Yeah. But then you see the police outside of the diner when they're stopped Eventually. right before Cincinnati. Right. So you know, but then the cabbie's like, okay, dude, let's go. It's yeah. getting late. Let's go. And I'm like, he's in on it. He's in on it. No, I thought he was like, like you know, like a German camaraderie type thing. And he was going to take them all the way home free unless, until they stopped. Like, they would have been fine. Right. If they, I mean, they would have been fine if they hadn't stopped is how the movie kind of plays right. it. Right. But. Um, so I, de- I thought maybe Doc was going to get away with it. The heist and everything is all in the first hour. So it's the whole second hour. You're wondering when the shoe is going to drop. It's the ramifications. That's yeah. an interesting way to format a heist movie. Exactly. But just the chain reaction of everything I thought was a cool involvement yeah. of, of the story as well. It's like Dix needs money, so he calls Gus, and Gus calls Louie. And Louis gets the money to him mm-hmm. and Dahl tells him, oh, Gus has a package for you. And then he pays Cubby with that money. So right. we already kind of see them working together before the actual heist of yeah. moving money around. So we kind of get a glimpse into their lives in this like city underneath a city. That's what the po- movie poster said, like the right. city under the city. That makes more sense now. So we get kind of an idea of how things are going. But I also thought, like, this is a really hard town. Like, you'll get robbed just so someone can have a clean shirt. Exactly. That's what they say at the very beginning. Yeah. Watch yeah. the cab driver. Be careful. People will clip you just for a clean shirt. And they said that twice, and they said that again. Like, oh, yeah. they tried to rob him, and he didn't have anything, so he took a shirt. I know. It's like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> like, you have a suitcase around here? Well, we take a lot of our clothing for granted. I made a note, too, like, whoa, is this, like, tell the times, or is it just the city that is so run down? Right. Like, it kind of seemed like both. Yeah, okay. There was, like, a lot of really good dialogue, like how they talked. The language of the yes. movie was kind of interesting. Yeah. It was almost like a country slang, but you're in a city, so it was a hard dialect to pinpoint. Yeah, I think it was almost the language of noir, too. I thought it was really cool in the heist scene. They just focus on the bag that has the gems in mm-hmm. it it kind of made remind me of oceans 11 when they're as the swat team they show you how the swat team's carrying right. the bag of money out and it focuses on the bag but once they put all the jewels into this like leather briefcase the camera just follows the bag yeah that's a it was a good like transition of this different scenes by just following the bag yes I also want to say the director, Houston, was an actor, too, and his favorite role was in Chinatown. He was in Roman Polanski's neo-noir Chinatown. He was in Chinatown? As the, like, big villain, as the, like, head honcho mastermind villain. And he never thought he was really much of an actor, but he did, like, that role he got to play. That's awesome. So his daughter, Angelica Houston, I wonder what it was like for her growing up with her dad. Yeah, and she said she took 
her first role at like 16 and she didn't really want to but she was in his movie and then you know it's just the rest is history yeah hollywood nepotism Mm, mm -hmm. so in some pre-code movies they do get to show criminals but they're almost like i mean we can watch these when we get to pre-code but they're almost like faceless criminals just like going about their crimes like in public enemy or uh, Scarface, it's just like they're just gangsters. But here we really get the characterization, the backstory of like what's motivating them. Right. We know exactly what's going through every character, even if it was just a scene like like Louis talking on the phone and then it like goes to the his bedroom and you can see a crib and then the baby's crying in the crib. The lighting during that too, the shadows, the light dark's really cool. It was just so crazy. Then the cops are like knocking at his door and the priest answers the door and they're like, we're looking for Louis, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, and he just looks over to the casket. opens the door further to see the funeral going on, basically. And then they still ask questions. Like they, I thought that would be a time where them being like, oh shit, sorry. But they keep asking questions and the priest is like, oh, you can talk to these people and give my name. I thought another good twist would be to fake that death and funeral. I thought so too. I thought that'd be really cool. But I mean, I guess no one really could could make it out of this. Yeah, movie. it all had to go wrong. Three die, one out of their own hand. Two are in jail, and one's on the run. Six out of seven isn't so bad, is what the police commissioner says. Right, and then Dix dies at the end. Part of film noir is that it's kind of melodrama, but with crime. Like if like in the Maltese Falcon. It's like you can kind of see that this is like a human drama and he's sort of like, I love you, but I can't even trust you. And this movie, there's very little melodrama. It's right. just that like everything goes wrong. That's and there's true. frustration and everyone is kind of a doomed character. Yeah, I was trying to look into how to really define film noir. Um, and the main categorization was the low key lighting. And this has unbalanced compositions. Yeah, Dutch which angle. This, oh, okay. This is the or style. Or asymmetrical, they, yeah. Right, but it's still, as I say, very well composed still. Um, so, yeah, just a, evidence of a variety of visual approaches. Yeah, I mean, there's flashbacks, uh, the voiceover narration, like maybe a, mm. a not a linear narrative can be a film noir. It's like about fringes of society, too. It is like a cynical outlook on life. Hmm. Um, you know, there's certain roles that women play, and so I think they have a lot of complexity too. But like people will say, the femme fatale. I don't think that's every film noir movie, but that's kind of part of it. They have a lot of stereotype characters right. across the genre. If you will. I think so. But I think there can be complexity in each. You know, I th- yes. I don't think women are always treated well in film noir, but I wouldn't say it's like a, a misogynistic genre either because i think there's a lot of complexity in the characters and i think the women are just as guilty as the men too Hmm. i think um eddie muller has a quote about that too quote is women are just as tempted and just as guilty as the men in film noir Hmm. and so it's uh eddie muller defines noir as suffering with style interesting so there is a certain style there's certain like an a certain banter right like you kind of got mm-hmm. that language mm-hmm. here and i think it was definitely in um maltese falcon too yeah like you said that quick kind of witty almost and they're speaking around stuff sometimes yeah and then showing criminals in a positive light or at least showing crime right i guess it is like they say shining light on a seedier yeah right it's story yeah it, 
It definitely feels like that too. The single light points, you know, create all those dark contrasting shadows, reminding me of like Caravaggio single yes. light Witches paintings. Expressionism, oh. you got it. Yeah, which is it was from expressionism of that kind of exaggerated light and dark. Wow. And that style comes over here. Definitely translates. Wow. Yeah. It worked. They you did got it. it. They did it correctly though. <laughs> oh, I, well, a lot of the directors and people were escaping the Nazis and came over here like Fritz Lang. Right. And I also want to point out this, we're going to come to this, but this is more of a naturalistic film noir. So it pays homage to Italian neorealism, which we're going to watch with like the bicycle thief and mm -hmm. Rome open city. So it's more like real people in their element and showing poverty and things like that and showing the desperation of people. Mm -hmm. So I think all of that is coming from that movement too. And so we're going to go there too as well. And that's Italian neorealism you yep. said? And so Fel that's where Fellini started too. Okay. So it also will influence Fellini, but that's kind of like after World War II, uh, Italy was just ravaged by war and that's kind of how they handled this. So film mm -hmm. noir is kind of America's after the war. What have we done? And Italian neorealism is kind of like what's happened after the war where you start to ask questions and right. look around you and maybe the things you thought are not true anymore yeah, a lot more devastation literally in front of your face right and Mussolini crumbled. yeah yeah crumbled buildings you've been living with the dictatorship as well yeah just yeah Italian history at that point in time was pretty bleak, was bleak. yeah exactly so some people will say Italian realism isn't as influential in film noir as German expressionism but obviously it does have a influenced here for this movie for sure yeah but i think also like those movies were people are paying attention to those movies at the time so there's no way it couldn't even subconsciously influence directors right and escapism movies. was basically booming due to all of those historical events I'm like, or surrealism because you can't quite face which reality. is a form of escape but yeah right. right so you maybe you're processing these things in a different way through a surrealist lens like Dada is happening now too right you know artistic surrealism's happening yeah it's interesting time of in insight in people's brains yeah and I think that's the people were asking those questions too. right yeah and it was more acceptable to ask those existential questions maybe well, I think when you've been through dealt with worse all know? these things then that's what you're left with right you know, two world wars within your lifetime and maybe serving and seeing all this right you're kind of left with these questions and i guess it's like the anti-golden age of hollywood where it was romanticized and mm -hmm. i think hollywood like it was pre-code where you could tell all these darker stories and then you had to stop during the depression and during world war ii and make like patriotic happy right. movies for people yeah and so i think artists and writers had all these ideas from these pulp fiction detective novels had all these mm. darker stories and so now they could finally make them and oh. it was kind of the time too right yeah so i think it was like an artist driven yeah and some people say it's a genre some people say it's an era i think it's also both i know yeah i found things where like it's still among debate you know whether or not it's a genre or if it's just a time period style right so What's it's kind that? of both yeah i know i was like how are they how is that two separate categories well i guess it's like so it's not film noir if it's not made after this time period oh or it's like an era of itself oh okay so yeah would you think it's this I mean, could, really a style if you could make a movie today to right, emulate so, that. Right, so they have neo-noir, so it's a little right. different. 
Maltese Fal- Falcon was made so much sooner yes. than the Asphalt Jungle. Yeah, nine years. Yeah. So it's almost like this maybe is... So Maltese Falcon is supposed to be like the first noir movie. Some people debate about it, but I think it's a good standard. So. And it was... It's kind of almost like fully fledged noir, it feels like. It, like it does. It feels like it has all these elements. It, it is textbook yeah. noir. And then this one, I think maybe there's been enough noir that's been done in this style that mm-hmm. maybe he wanted to make another like you know naturalistic noir or heist movie or kind of go into this subgenre right or even an ode to their its origin right so yeah. it could be all those things so he doesn't have to make you know a noir movie anymore he can make something else right because it's been nine years right and it should hopefully progress Evolve, right. in five in nine years <laughs> so i guess afterwards i mean at one point um John Huston renounces his U.S. citizenship. He had dual citizenship, so he goes to Ireland to make movies because the antique or communism hearings are going on. Hmm. And so I think some of the actors turn on each other here, you know, in real life afterwards. Wow. And so, like, shit starts blowing up. And I guess um, Houston made, like, a his own organization to help stick together and help fight hmm. the McCarthyism hearings. Wow. And the cinematographer for this is Harold Rosan, and he did Singing in the Rain and Wizard of Oz. How would there be much room for a cinematographer to work with if Houston if is so everything, every particular? Shot. Right, exactly. You're basically just setting up a tripod at that point. Right. <laughs> so. Uh, so the novel is from 1949, so it is a contemporary oh, wow. story. So it was a pretty new novel, I guess, Interesting. Thanks for listening to No Synopsis, a film history podcast. It's hosted by me, Elise, and my co-host, Ashley. Please like and follow. We'll be coming out with another episode soon. Oh my gosh, the fake eyelashes. One of my eyelashes is coming off. Peels it off. You boned me. You boned me in front of another man. <laughs> I know what you you boned me in front of a strange man. He boned me. Yeah, I'd be like, don't bone me. Don't bone me. <laughs> he's a sensitive guy. Oh, he's got a line of blondes down the block. He can finance them all. They're all his alibi for his murder. <laughs> right? Banana head. Banana head. Is that good?